0: The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Matthew 14. You will, of course, remember that Jesus performed many miracles during his public earthly ministry. We studied many of them back in Matthew 8 and 9. We saw lepers who were Cured, we saw paralyzed people made to walk and function. We saw sick people healed and demons cast out. We saw blind people made to see, and deaf people made to hear, and mute people made to talk. We saw demons cast out, and of course, dead people raised to life. All incredible powers on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we said in those study of those chapters that the purpose of miracles was not to entertain the masses, it was not to wow them, it was truly to prove that He is the Messiah, He is the King, He is the Son of God, God in human flesh. These miracles all authenticate who He is, His message, His life, His ministry. John 5.36 Jesus says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Imagine if someone came claiming to be God in human flesh. They would have to have the marks of deity and divinity within them. So if someone came showing up claiming that but didn't have the abilities that were consistent with divinity, then they wouldn't be God. So if God shows up in human flesh, we would expect him to be able to perform works consistent with that. That's exactly what we see in Jesus. He comes, he demonstrates his power and his authority through the raising of the dead and the healing of sick people. The one thing, though, that has amazed me in our study of the miracles of Jesus is that for the most part, all of his miracles were aimed at meeting a specific need. Think about this he could have come and done impersonal miracles, he could have come and rained fire down from heaven and shown that he's God. He could have come and moved mountains to prove that he is God. He could have come and made seas dry up and proved that he is God. He could have come and suspended the temple in midair and proved that he's God. But for the most part, every one of his miracles was aimed at delivering people in need. It shows us. What kind of savior he is. He's a savior who cares for the desperate needs of people, physical needs, spiritual needs. He's not blind to those things, he's not immune to those needs. He is a kind of savior who's compassionate and who's merciful and who's gracious. You just heard a song about the mercy and the compassion of Jesus and that we can rest in him. That's what he's like. He's a God who saves. He's a God who rescues because he's a God of compassion. We see in all of these miracles where Jesus is meeting specific needs of people, we see a window into his heart. And we get a glimpse of, of what our Savior is really like. Well, this morning, as we come to Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21, that's what we're going to see in the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of Jesus that is perhaps the most well-known of all the miracles that he has done. In fact, it is the only miracle included in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record this miracle. It is the only one in all four Gospels. Let me read these verses. I want you to follow along as I read starting in verse 13. (laughs) Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed their food, the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave to the disciples And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets, and there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Incredible miracle. Which gives us a glimpse into the compassion of our Savior. We find this morning that Jesus is moved by people in distress. He's not unaware of those troubles that we face, He's not unaware of of the difficulties before us, He's not blind to our trials and difficulties. He knows them and He is compassionate toward people in distress. He's not calloused and cold and indifferent. Mark Jones says this, he says, we can rejoice in the knowledge that our Savior is more compassionate to us now than we can ever be to ourselves. We can rejoice that his compassion to us is not mere sentiment, but a powerful compassion whereby he can supply us with his grace in our times of need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is a... God, a Savior who demonstrates powerful compassion, where He can supply us with His grace in times of need. Think for just a moment what if He was able but not willing, or what if He was willing but not able? Think for just a moment. If, if Jesus knew of our trials, he knew of our difficulties, he knew of our distress, and on the one hand, he was able to deal with them, but not willing. Imagine if that was the case. What if, what if he was powerful and he could do something about it, but he was not willing to do something about it? Or on the other hand, imagine if he was compassionate and he was willing to do something to help people in distress, but he didn't have the power to do it. Either one of those would put us in a difficult situation, and yet what we find this morning is not only is he compassionate, he is powerful. And not only is he able, he's willing. We have a Savior who demonstrates powerful compassion and is able to supply us with his grace in our times of need. Do you believe that? Or are you here this morning and you feel like Jesus has failed you? Are you here this morning and something has happened in your life recently where you feel like Jesus has turned a blind eye to your needs, where you feel like he has forgotten you, where you feel like he is unaware of your situation, he doesn't really care about what is going on in your life? Listen, if that's you and you're here this morning, you have a wrong view of Jesus, That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And I don't know your circumstances, and I don't know all that's going on in your life, and I have no doubt that there are some difficult issues that every one of us here are dealing with. That is a very likely reality, and yet at the same time, we have a Savior who is both powerful to help and willing and compassionate in his desire to help. And I want you to see that this morning. I'm gonna give you three truths that demonstrate Christ's compassion Toward those in distress. Three truths that are going to come from these verses that demonstrate Christ's compassion towards those in distress. Number one is compassion displayed in heartfelt concern. Compassion displayed in heartfelt concern. Notice verse 13, let's begin and notice where this account begins. It says in verse 13, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So remember, it's been a couple weeks since we didn't have church last week, but remember what happened two weeks ago when we were studying Matthew 14, John the Baptist had been murdered The one sent by God to make a way for the coming of the the Messiah, the forerunner, the one who is a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. He was put into prison and he was murdered. He was beheaded at the request of Herod's stepdaughter. He granted her request for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. He was murdered. Jesus is told about this. And so he wants to go away. He wants to leave. He wants to withdraw. That's what it says here in verse 13. He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place. Now, remember, this is what Jesus has been doing since chapter 11. Remember, all along in his public ministry, he's been willing to meet the needs of the crowds, and he's been out ministering to the multitudes. His ministry has been largely public. He's been out there proclaiming the truth and ministering to people. And as he's doing this, the opposition is mounting and the rejection is growing. And in chapter 11, the common people rejected him. In chapter 12, the religious leaders rejected him him by attributing his power to Satan. In chapter 13, he begins preaching in parables to hide the truth from certain people and to reveal it to others, and at the end of chapter 13, his own hometown rejects him. And so our Savior is meeting with rejection all along the way. And so he's withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing and pulling himself back so he can minister to his disciples who are gonna carry the baton. And here's another situation. He has just heard of the death of John the Baptist and he's going to withdraw. He's gonna pull himself back. It says that he himself might go to a secluded place. Mark actually tells us in Mark six thirty one, come away, he says to the disciples, by yourselves to a secluded place. So it's Jesus and the disciples. Luke nine verse ten says, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done, and taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. So understand what's happening. This has transpired. John the Baptist has been murdered. Jesus hears about this, and he wants to take the disciples. Away with him. He's in Capernaum. He's going to go to Bethsaida. He needs some alone time with his disciples. And so they hop in a boat. And it says here that they went to a secluded place somewhere outside of Bethsaida. They hop in a boat in Capernaum. They go about three miles across the top of the Sea of the Galilee. They arrive in Bethsaida, and they walk to a place where they hope it's going to be quiet. And notice verse 13. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So much for quiet. So much for some time to regroup and be refreshed with his men. It says the people, when they heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. How many people? Skip down to verse 21. We know that there were at least 5,000 men there besides women and children. Most scholars put the size of this crowd at 20 to 25,000 people this was not just a few people this was a small village that traveled on foot to find Jesus mark 6:33 tells us that the crowd ran on foot and beat Jesus there And so they anticipate where he's going. They hear about this. They they know where he's going. And so they get on their shoes, their sandals, and they start making track to where Jesus is going to be. And so just imagine for a moment what this scene must have been like. There were people thronging to this place. John tells us that they were attracted to him and followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Sick. That's John 6, two. So they're going after Jesus. They're following him because they want what he has to offer. Not spiritually, not for their souls, but for what he can do for them physically. That's why they're following him. They're going for him all the wrong reasons. In a sense, I mean, you can't blame them. They want to be healed. They want their physical ailments taken care of so you can understand this, but they're not interested in his teaching. They're not interested in what he has to offer them spiritually. They just want his physical touch. So Jesus steps off the boat with his 12 men for some quiet, refreshing time and is met with 25,000 people. What would you do? I'd be tempted to put on my Nikes and run. (laughs) I'd head for the hills, and I'd go to some place where no one could find me. Not Jesus. Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Let, let, let's think in for just a moment. A man is in need of rest. He's human. His forerunner has just been murdered. He needs some time with his men. And yet in that moment Jesus, the most selfless, compassionate man who's ever walked this earth, sees the crowd and he's compassionate. Splanknidzomai, from the word splunkna, which refers to your bowels, your guts. He felt something right here. And if you know anything about how the ancient Near Eastern people thought of emotions, they thought of your guts as the seat of your emotions. Sometimes we even refer to that today. I have a gut feeling about something or I really hate that thing with all my guts. That's the idea, this idea that your emotions reside here within your belly, your abdomen, your guts, your bowels, and that's the idea. He's moved there. He is so moved by the sight of these people that he feels it. He feels pity towards them. He wants to show them compassion. He wants to show them mercy. By the way, you might be interested to know that the only time this, used, this verb is used in the New Testament, it always refers to Christ. Every time this word is used, it always refers to Jesus, Matthew 9:36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 15, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the multitude. Matthew 20, verse 34, and moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and they regained their sight. Do you see what Jesus is like? He is compassionate. He feels pity towards people in distress. He sees them in need, and and his heart goes out to them. There's this gut-level, visceral response. He's not cold. He's not uncaring. He's not dismissive. He's not put out by their needs. As his eyes look upon these crowds and all of their physical ailments, and he's looking beyond the physical ailments to their spiritual needs, his heart is moved. compassion to the point look at verse 14 what does he do he heals them this guy who needs rest this man who desperately wants some time away with his disciples now is inundated with the masses who are in desperate need and he now pours himself out to meet the needs of these people beloved this is compassion Have you ever been so tired, so needy, so so much in need of refreshment that you don't feel like you had much to give? Now compare that with Jesus, who in this moment is once again ready to pour himself out, serve in a selfless way. I love this because I think what you see is the humanity of Christ. We talk about God and his deity being impassable. Remember we've said this before, God and his perfections is impassable, meaning he's he's not subject to shifting moods, he doesn't experience fluctuating dispositions You and I, when we get emotional, we tend to respond in light of those emotions. God's not like that. He has affections, but he's not driven by his emotions. He's never overcome with rage. He never falls in love. He never gets frustrated. So he doesn't have emotions that sweep over him and then involuntarily cause him to do something. That, That happens to us, not to God. He's impassable. But in Jesus, you have an impassable God who also is compassionate, and he's moved by compassion in his humanity. He's responding to the knees before them, him. He's responding to their physical problems, to their spiritual problems, their state before him, and he's... Responding in an unselfish manner. Here's the humble Christ, our Savior, willing to spend and be spent in ministering to the needs of others. And that's what I want you to see this morning. He is a gracious Savior. He doesn't respond to human weakness with contempt or disdain or disgust. Oh, you again? Seriously? That's not what He's like. He's moved with compassion to the needs of his people. And so I wonder this morning, do you know this about Jesus? Do you believe this to be true? Whatever circumstances you're in, whatever trials you're in, whatever hardships you've been having to deal with, do you you feel like in some sense he's forsaken you? Or he's forgotten you? Or he's callous to your needs? I promise you, that's not Jesus he's moved to compassion he knows your needs he knows your struggles he knows what you're in the midst of your trials and struggles that's what kind of savior he is Can i give you another implication i think jesus models here for us what we're to be like He's modeling for his disciples what pouring yourself out for others looks like. He's modeling for his men what a true selfless ministry looks like. He's preparing them for their future ministry as they carry the the baton beyond him. And so he's modeling for them and he's modeling for us what true compassion toward others looks like. And the question I want to pose to you this morning is, are you emulating your life after the compassion of our Savior? are you compassionate toward the people in your life if i were to ask the people closest to you if i were to go to the people in your life you work with and live with and pal around with and i were to ask them what what are you like would compassion be one of the things that they mention would your husband your wife your kids parents would they say that he he or she's a compassionate person this, this is what he's modeling for us this this is what he's laying down as an example for us and this is what we're told in scripture philippians 2 Verses 3 to 5, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Is, is that you? Is there a selflessness, a compassion toward others? a heart to serve a heart to meet needs a, a compassion a kindness humility a gentleness a patience is is that characteristic of you so jesus meets the crowds and what begins to leak out of him is this tender affection for people in distress number 2 Compassion displayed in gracious testing. Compassion displayed in gracious testing. This one's a little less noticeable on the surface. The first one's pretty obvious. This one's a little bit less clear, but I think you'll see it as we go through this. Sometimes what I mean by this is sometimes God puts us in situations where it feels like it's impossible. So that we turn away from our sufficiency to the sufficiency of our Savior. And that's what you're going to see here with these disciples. That's an act of compassion because God wants to test us at times. He wants to put us through situations where we come to the end of ourselves, where we realize that we really don't have the resources in ourselves to deal with the situations of life. And he wants to remind us of his sufficiency in those moments when we feel like we're in situations that are entirely impossible. And that's what you're about to see in this next phase of this Miracle. The scene is now set for what is perhaps the greatest and most well known miracle that Jesus has ever performed. Verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Notice some things about this. Notice now it's evening. It has been a long day. Jesus had tried to get away for some much needed rest and they're needing some refreshment themselves. And so they arrive in Bethsaida, they go up in the hill, and they're met with a crowd of 20 to 25,000 people, and they're there all day, and they're ministering all day. And Jesus is meeting needs all day, and he's healing the sick, and he's caring for the diseased, and he's pouring out his life to those that are there in trouble. And they're on a mountain in a desolate place, and the shadows begin to lengthen, and the day becomes longer, and it's about evening, and there's a problem. There's no Chick-fil-A near. Oh, they're not open on Sunday anyway, so. There's no 7-Eleven. They're not close to really any village. Some of them may have walked up to 10 miles to find Jesus that day. No one really planned for this event. They're on a hillside. The day is getting long. The people are hungry. The people are tired, everyone's weary from a long day, and the disciples recognize a problem. How in the world are we going to get food for all these people? And so they come up with a plan, which is probably the plan most of us would come up with as well. Verse 15, hey, Jesus, you should um, send everyone away make them leave because they're they're getting hungry we've got nothing here for them so just send them away disperse them so they can go into the villages and perhaps they can buy <clears throat> food for themselves the thinking is this if they spread out maybe they can find something we're not going to find anything here there's nothing close by so why don't we go ahead and just send them on their own send them on their way and perhaps they can figure things out on their own that wasn't jesus plan Number one, this was another opportunity to display his power, his authority, his compassion. And number two, it was an opportunity to test these men. It was an opportunity to stretch the faith of his disciples, to put them in a situation where it was impossible for them to solve the issue on their own and to make them recognize their lack of resources so it drives them back to Christ. It is interesting to me, isn't it, that they're... First response is not, hey, maybe Jesus could do something. Maybe Jesus, this man who we've been watching heal sick people and raise dead people and cast demons out of people and help the paralyzed, it didn't even dawn on them that that they could have perhaps asked Jesus to solve this problem for them. And so they just say, just send them away. Verse 16 but jesus said to them they do not need to go away you give them something to eat and the you there is emphatic you disciples you solve the problem you meet their needs you see what he's doing he knows they don't have any resources in themselves He knows they can't solve this problem on their own, but you see what he's doing. He's showing them their lack of resources, so they come to him, which they didn't get at first. He's testing them. He's stretching their trust in him. He knew there's not enough to feed the crowd, but he wanted them to come to the point where they recognize his sufficiency. One writer says, Jesus does not say what is to be eaten or how the disciples are to obtain it. He simply turns their attention away from the hopelessness of the situation and their easy solution and invites them to think how they could help. And what's their answer? Look at verse 17. They said to him, well, we only have five loaves and two fish. That's not going to work. Do do you see the level of zero confidence in the Savior? Do you see their spiritual dullness to, to the reality standing right before their eyes? We've only got five loaves and two fish. Don't turn there, but the Gospel of John fills out some more details for us. Uh, We know from John's account that Jesus singled Philip out in this situation. Listen to John 6, 5 and 6. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now, here's some more details. Jesus identifies the problem early in the day even before they meet the crowds it says in John that they he sees a large crowd coming to him and says to Philip how are we going to feed them so in the beginning of the day Jesus has already identified the problem and said to Philip hey Philip what do you think we should do he's had all day to think about it and Philip apparently was kind of a numbers guy he's doing the math. He's thinking about it and he's kind of calculating in his mind. And listen to John 6 verse 7. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. He's doing the calculations. A denarius was a day's wage. 200 denarii would be 200 days' wages, eight months. Philip is saying if we had eight months' worth of income, we wouldn't still have enough. And here's what we know. One denarius in that day bought 36 barley biscuits, the cheapest food you can find. So 200 denarii times 36 is 7,200 biscuits. There's 25,000 people in the crowd. And Philip says even if we had eight months of wages, it wouldn't be enough. John gives us a little more details. Andrew, another disciple, he does a little bit better. He says, and it says in verse 8 and 9 of John 6, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but... What are these for so many people? Andrew found a boy who had some food, but he knew that wasn't enough. And so now we come to the conclusion. This has been going on all day. They've been thinking about this. They've been talking about it. They've had the day to wrestle through this. And they come to the conclusion, verse 17, we have only five loaves and two fish. You see the problem? They're focused on their lack of resources. They're not focused on Christ. They're not thinking through what Jesus could do for them in that situation. They're not thinking outside of the box and knowing that God and human flesh is there with them. They couldn't see beyond their own resources. And the idea of Jesus feeding these people miraculously didn't even enter their minds. All they could think of was we got nothing. Got a little bit of bread, we got a little bit of fish, but look at the size of the people. This is is an impossible situation, Jesus, so just send them away. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's he's stretching them. They, They need to understand some things about seemingly impossible situations. And they need to see their own lack of resources, but they also need to see the resources of Jesus who can sustain them and care enough for them to provide what they need in the midst of that seemingly impossible state. Do you know that God does that with us sometimes? Do you understand that sometimes God in his compassion wants you in apparently impossible situations to stretch your thinking And to grow you in trust, to help you see, yes, you are limited in your resources, but you don't need to figure all of this out. Sometimes you need to cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord and trust Him implicitly for the situation that you are facing, which looks like impossible for you to handle in your limited resources. One writer says this, we are tempted to think that had we been there, our first thought would have been to ask Jesus to feed the multitudes as he had proved himself capable of doing hundreds of times. What could have been a more obvious solution than to have the Son of God create food to feed this crowd just as he had created wine for the wedding guests at Cana? That would hardly have been an impossible challenge to the one who healed every sort of disease, raised the dead, cast out demons, walked on water, and instantaneously calmed the fierce storm. Yet... How many times has every believer faced a crisis that seemed overwhelming and insurmountable and failed to consider the Lord's power? You ever been there? In situations that seem overwhelming, insurmountable, Or you fail to consider the Lord's power. Don't we get ourselves there all the time? This is impossible. I have no idea how this is going to work out. In fact, it's probably not going to work out. In fact, you you go down to this moment of despair. You focus on your limited resources. You focus on what you don't have. You get so focused on the things that you're lacking, that you're missing. The sufficiency of Christ. Christ. And sometimes God puts us in that situation in his compassion because he wants to show us his sufficiency and he wants to show us his grace and he wants to show us his strength and he wants to minister to us in that moment so that we see how weak we are but how great he is, how majestic he is, how powerful he is. Do you remember Paul? His thorn in the flesh 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times he implores the Lord to take it away from him, and God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Beloved, do you believe that? Do you believe that when you are in situations that seem overwhelming and you don't know how it's going to get figured out, that you have a God, that you have a Savior, who is more than sufficient to sustain you and help you and give you wisdom in the midst of that situation? That's Compassion. It's the compassion of Jesus because he wants us to learn these things because it's to our good and it's to his glory to see our lack of sufficiency and to see his sufficiency so that he gets all the credit and he gets all the glory and we find our joy when we find our needs met in him. So are you in one of those situations this morning? Are you in one of those impossible situations? You're looking around and you're saying, I got nothing. And yet, you have Jesus, your sustainer, your helper, the one who works all things to his glory and your good. Compassion displayed in heartfelt concern. Number two, compassion displayed in gracious testing. Number three, compassion displayed in generous provision. How compassionate is our Savior? How powerful is our Savior? How good is our Savior? How sufficient is our Savior? Here's the miracle. Verse 18. And he said, bring them to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. You can almost see it, can't you? Oh, you disciples. You missed it. Here's an opportunity for you to trust me. To watch me provide. And so he says, bring them to me. He takes the five loaves. He takes the two fish. Mark 6, 39 to 40 says that he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass and they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Imagine this hillside dotted with groups of people all over it he prays for the food in verse 19 and breaking the loaves he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds I'll explain the miracle in just a moment well as much as possible but I want you to hear some of what people have come up with to explain this miracle away. There are uh, anti-supernatural liberals who don't want to believe that these things are miraculous. And so I was reading this week of some of the ways that they have explained this miracle away. Here's a few of the explanations. Some have su- suggested that the moment of the healing of all of these people, Jesus there created such a religious fervor amongst the crowds that suddenly their hunger went away. I don't think that's what happened. Others have suggested that Jesus and his disciples had been stockpiling food in the caves around the area where they all were, and so then they just released them into the caves to pull all the food out that they would stockpiled. Um... I don't think so, because that's not what it says. (laughs) Some have also suggested that the miracle here is the spirit of sharing that the little boy inspired, and they all had food in their knapsacks, but it was the little boy who was so willing to share his five loaves and two fish that it just inspired everyone to give and share, and so the miracle is really sharing Uh, Nope, that's not what it is either. This is a miracle. A flat out supernatural miracle. And as Jesus breaks the bread and begins handing out the fish to the disciples, it multiplies before their very eyes. Listen how Spurgeon explains this. Peter takes a loaf of bread and begins to break it. And as he breaks it, he has always as much in his hands as he started with. Here, take a bit of fish, friend, says he. And he gives a whole fish to that man. He has a whole fish left. So he gives it to another and another and another and goes on scattering the bread and scattering the fish everywhere as quickly as he can. And when he's done, he has his hands just as full of fish and just as full of bread as ever. That's what happened. Jesus hands it to the disciples. The disciples hand it out to the groups of 50s and 100s. And as they're handing it out, it's literally being multiplied before their eyes. So the point, verse 20, notice what it says, and they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. You think maybe with just 25,000 people, just got a little nibble, they just got a little you know, square of a piece of bread and just one little tiny piece of fish. they were still hungry. No, that's not what it says. They ate until they were satisfied. They were full. By the way, the word satisfied is the word that refers to animals which have been given food to fatten them up. They were so full, they couldn't eat anything else. In fact, so much food was there that they had 12 baskets left over. This is a creation miracle. Jesus has brought into existence something that wasn't there, power and compassion. And I want you to see just the tenderness of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the goodness of Christ brought together with his power and his authority. And what I want you to notice is the fact that for most of these people there that day who are witnessing this miracle of the Bread being multiplied and the fish being multiplied, and having their sicknesses healed, most of them walked away that day without any interest in Christ, other than what he could do for them physically. You say, "How do you know that? John six. 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. 25,000 people who are receiving from Jesus physical needs being met, miraculous power on display. And they walk away. Without trusting in this Savior. This is how compassionate our Savior is. And he would do this for people who would still spurn him. And so I wonder this morning is it possible that some of you are here and you continue to receive compassion after compassion after compassion for Jesus Christ, and yet you still spurn him? He gives you food to eat, he gives you life in your body and breath in your lungs. He gives you relationships. He gives you evidences of his kindness and his mercy every single day. He doesn't judge you the moment you sin. He gives you kindness after kindness after kindness. And is it possible that some of you here this morning continue to be like these crowds? You want Jesus for what you can, he can do for you. But you are not willing to submit your life to him. Listen to Romans 2 verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Are you here this morning And are you thinking lightly of the riches of God's kindness? Have you made light of his compassion? Have you made light of his grace? Have you made light of his mercy? And do you continue to spurn the Savior? If that's you, I urge you this morning, stop turning your back on him. Stop viewing him for just what he can do for you physically. Stop viewing him as just a God who can give you what you want. And submit your life to him. Embrace him. Come to know him as your Lord and Savior. Exchange your sin for his righteousness. Believe in him. Trust him. Believe that he can not only rescue you from your physical ailments, but he can deliver your soul from hell. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, you have experienced this compassion, I would ask you, have you somehow lost sight of this? Have the troubles of life, the trials of life, the impossible situations that you seem to find yourself in, have they have they clouded your view of Christ's compassion? And have you somehow lost sight of the fact he really does care for you? Have you allowed your heart to go down a hole of despair and you've started to think false thoughts about Christ and wrong thoughts about Jesus and you've allowed yourself to succumb to low and base views of him and you've actually begun to believe that he's not kind or he's not able to help you or he's calloused? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Fix your heart on him. Preach these truths to yourself. Believe his compassion for you. Believe his kindness towards you. Believe that he does care for his people in distress. And let that be the anchor of your soul. Father, we need to hear these things because too often we do get locked into our own Thinking, and we get our eyes focused on our problems, situations that, from our perspective, seem overwhelming and insurmountable, crises and the crucibles of life that make us fail to consider both Christ's power and his compassion. Lord, We confess too often our thoughts of you are that way and and we need reminders of your goodness and your kindness and your compassion. And so we thank you for this. Or for the person here this morning who still does not believe that you're good and compassionate and they've spurned that, would you draw them to yourself? And for those of us who have lost sight of this compassion, Lord, let us be those who preach to ourselves these marvelous realities and Lord, if it be your will, you would put us in situations that do seem impossible, that, that we would fix our eyes not on our limited resources, but on your power, your strength, your glory, your help. Because we thank you, Lord, that when we're weak, you're strong. And so grow us, sanctify us, mature us. And let us fix our eyes on our compassionate and kind Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.